The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. This week we time travel effortlessly between the eras of Shakespeare and uptown New York in the year 2000. The novelist Sandra Newman joins us later. But first, it's always a highlight of the literary year when the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction is announced and we wait to hear who it is who has caught the imagination of the judges. This year's contenders included Pat Barker and Madeline Miller. And the judges, I have to say, played a bit of a blinder. Six wonderful books written by these intelligent, brilliant, creative women. Amazing books. But we all know there can be only one winner. So... This book, I'm so excited. (laughs) This book captivated us from the very start. It's a touching portrayal of a very special bond between two people whose lives twist and turn, who have hopes and dreams, who must find courage in the face of devastating adversity, a blasting light on injustice and prejudice and what it means to be human. The winner of the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction is Tyari Jones with an American Marriage. Our own Sean Kane was at the ceremony and managed to catch Tayari Jones moments after, still reeling from the news and trying to put into words how she felt. I am thrilled and I am honoured. Yeah. Were you expecting to win at all? You know, no. I mean, the shortlist was so strong. I was you know, honoured to be among them, but I had no idea, you know, whether I would win. I didn't write a speech or anything. <laughs> well, you did a really good job when you got on stage. So can you just tell listeners that haven't read your book, An American Marriage, can you just lay out what the basics of the plot is and where we find uh, Roy and Celestial when we first meet them? An American Marriage is the story of a young African-American couple, you know, upwardly mobile. They have their whole life ahead of them when the husband is arrested for a crime he does not commit. They are newlyweds, married only 18 months, and he's given a 12-year sentence. And the question of the book is, you know, what will happen with their marriage? Will they stay married? Should they stay married? Who's to blame? And the amazing thing is that it's a really accessible novel. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting, it's funny, but it's also got at its heart this real issue of uh, incarceration and injustice. What made you decide that you were going to tackle that in fiction? Well, I've always known about incarceration as kind of the boogeyman of black America, that you can do everything right and this injustice will just kind of like, you know, it'll, it's a monster under the bed. And I decided to look under the bed and tackle it head on. I did all this research on the issue of incarceration, but I didn't know how to make it a story. A problem is not a story. And then I was at a shopping mall and I saw a young couple. They were in love and in trouble. And I heard the woman say, clear as a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And he looked at her and said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I knew that I had a novel because there was a moral ambiguity there. What would happen? This, my character, Celestial, is a young woman, much like myself. She's ambitious. She wants to be an artist. And this terrible thing happens to her husband. Does she still have a right to her dreams? What, what do they owe each other? Where is duty? Where is love? And what is the role of the larger issue of incarceration? 
And it's interesting that you're on a short list with books like Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls and Madeline Miller's Circe, because at the heart of your book as well, there is Greek myth. It's a, a you, you've t- spoken about Celestial being Penelope from Homer's uh, Odyssey. Absolutely. You know, Roy wants, Roy has all these challenges and he just wants to come home and find a faithful woman, much like Odysseus. But the challenge is this. This is a modern story, and he has an ideal of a woman that is from, you know, 65 B.C., and she is an artist, a textile artist like Penelope, but instead of unweaving her tapestry like Penelope, she has become famous for her art. How can they put their relationship back together? Can they put their relationship back together? You know, Roy is not coming home as a hero in the way that Odysseus is, but the question really is, what does the modern return look like? What is a modern marriage? What is, how do we, how do we satisfy our obligations to tradition, each other, and to ourselves? And it's interesting that you're in London at the moment while uh, a certain US president is also in town. You've had other presidential readers, you've had uh, Barack Obama has spoken out about how he found an American marriage really moving. Um, Is it your hope that perhaps you might be able to find a second presidential reader? You know, I'm very delighted that Barack Obama read my book. I have no real hope or desire that the current occupant of the White House will read my book. I don't think of him at all. We're thrilled to be joined in the studio by Arifa Akbar, one of the judges who chose American Marriage. Was it a standout from you all the way through, Arifa? It's an extraordinary book, and, and we all thought this. But, you know, being utterly honest, there was no... I didn't go to the final judges' meeting thinking, I know my winner. And that's because the strength of those six books. I was confused. So in some senses... And it became a really hard final meeting to have because it was like comparing apples with oranges. One of the reasons this book won was not just its literary quality, because it's an extraordinary and beautiful and daring literary book, but because we all cried and felt viscerally through it. So we all, we were swept along with this story, which was a tragic story, beautifully told, but it got a huge emotional response from all of us. It's got this most lovely honey voice as well, hasn't it? It has. It really has. And it's what I thought about the voice was that it was a sort of honeyed voice, but there was real anger and injustice and brutality beneath that voice. So the story. Yeah, the story. On the one hand, the story is about a marriage. It's about a couple of middle class black Americans from the point at which they decide to get married. They're deeply in love. You feel their love. It's profound. It's wonderful. It's romantic and it's passionate. And you're taken from that point where you're completely invested in this love between them. And it, an incident that happens on the cusp of married life and the man in it is, is accused of raping a woman at a motel. I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that. It's pretty early on. And he's wrongly accused, and we know that pretty early on. And from that point onwards, this story is about the marriage but how it's going to survive this incident, how it's going to survive the fact that this man now has to serve a sentence and go through the, the, the legal justice system and try and prove himself innocent when he's already innocent. And what she will do, Celestial will do, while he does this. So from, that, from this very intimate and passionate story of a marriage, and this is what it always remains, it remains a love story, 
you span out into criminal justice system, being black in America, loyalty and sacrifice because the celestial is put in a position she's she's a wonderful character she's a formidable character and very real as well she's both vulnerable and strong she's put in a position where she's got to make a choice between you know her own in a way freedom and marital sacrifice because she's looking at being a prisoner's wife she, they're both middle class black americans they haven't encountered this world of criminal justice and fighting the system. It sounds like a, an Oprah book, and indeed it, it was an Oprah it book was, in the States, wasn't it? Uh, and Obama was very keen on it. He was. You know, we didn't know this, but yeah, it's made huge waves. It's been shortlisted for the National Book Awards in America. Obama, as you say, pricked it as a summer choice. Oprah uh, has endorsed it and retweeted when, when we shortlisted the book. She's got major fans in, in America, but here she's not all that well known. And in fact, because I was rooting, I have to confess, I was rooting for Pat Barker, The Silence of the Girls, <sighs> I, which I absolutely loved. I absolutely, we had, we had really long, the final meeting, we had really long conversations on each book. And beca- partly because we wanted to honour each book, because each book was so good. What's wonderful about both Pat Barker and Madeleine Miller is that you'll never really read the Iliad or the Odyssey in the same way. Or at least I won't. I think the Iliad, you know, it should be so obvious to us, the silences in the Iliad, the fact that Brucius never talks, the fact that these women are spoils of war. And we accept that because there's greater action with the men, you know, the men of war and the tragedy that befalls these men. And of course, when you, you, you know, you turn to Pat Barker, you just, she humanizes the way she deals with war, as we know, is, is human and compassionate, but but savage at the same time. This book is a beautiful book to read, but it's savage. I've been pressing it into the hands of people, but at the same time worried because uh, I felt uncomfortable reading it because she doesn't pull any punches. So this is a big book, but Pat Barker's is mm. a it's, it's a big subject, an epic subject, and you've made a very good case for the epicness of an American marriage in the context of the American justice system, American society. And I, I was wondering about Diana Evans' Ordinary People. I had a, a sort of bit of moment of sadness for that because that's a quiet, very, very beautifully drawn portrait of a marriage, but it doesn't hook itself in, in a sort of very ostentatious way to issues. Yeah, I liked it. I liked how um, humble it seemed. But I, I have to say, I, I see her book as a state of the nation novel. I know not everyone will agree. Again, there's a marriage. You know, you see, you see big things through prisms of middle-class, middle-aged, I suppose, life of black Britons this time. There's two central couples. We're taken through the malaise, the marital malaise they're experiencing perhaps for the first time when the romance is sort of worn off its sheen and now they, they're encountering you know, the realities and, and some of the ma- mundane realities of mar- married life. But there's politics all around them. There's the politics of black identity. A lot of them subtly, not, not you know, this isn't written hard into the, into the narrative, but they are questioning what it means to be black and British and middle class. And they're questioning urban life as opposed to country life. You know, there's the country and the city and there's that divide that we now, Brexit has shown us as glaringly obvious, but it's there in, in the subtle folds of the of the story. 
there's the other side of being black British at some points that intrudes into their gentrified lives. And it's bookended by political events. You know, it's the, you begin by, well, an American momentous event with Obama's inauguration and you end with the death of Michael Jackson. And these are American reference points, but nonetheless, they sort of situate this book within a bigger political landscape. I also thought the way she wrote it, I know it's quiet, but I think the way she wrote it reminded, it was sort of like contemporary Dickens because she creates these panoramic scenes of London. You know, a character will be on a bus and you'll suddenly see London in all its contemporary noise and glory. And she brings it alive because she's, she's got a musical score. It's quite a complicated idea, but it works so well. You almost see London described as if to a jazz soundtrack. That's how I was seeing it. And she has these great big panoramic vistas. And then she narrows in on her characters, which is, I think, such a Dickensian, sort of Dick, Dickens-like literary thing to do. It was one of the things I liked very much about Ink and Braithwaite's book was the way that she brought Lagos to life. Um, and again, she does that very quietly because she's not saying here we are and, you know, this is Lagos life and this is bigger Lagos politics. She's saying these are two Nigerian sisters. She's creating a, a really slick, satirical story between these two sisters, one murderess and one the observer through which we get the story at the narrator observer. And for a while, I thought with that book, you know, I like this, I'm turning the pages, this is, she, she's got me going, she's very clever in getting story going, and she's got loads of wit. But I thought, is this going to be gimmicky? And is this just going to skit on the surface of things? But it sort of wraps its, its hand slowly around your throat, doesn't it? Mm, and very much so. Yeah. yeah. She's, and she's got the confidence to just let the characters, let the setting speak for themselves rather than be explaining all the time or self-consciously going out to paint a portrait of something for, for an outside observer. Absolutely. And yet you get quite a vivid picture of what it means to be a woman, a young woman in Lagos. And you get a really vivid picture, I think, of family life in Lagos. So I'm going to cut in there and say you, you can cut these shortlists in many different ways. One way you can say is, oh, isn't it interesting that there are so many retellings of classics, which we've talked about before. But it's very noticeable that 50% of this shortlist are from women of colour. I mean, is that significant or is it just coincidence? Do you think? Well, when we got, we noticed it when we put our long list together. And there was, there was never a moment when we, it, we, it struck us in a, on the long list stage by the time we'd decided the long list and we began looking at it like a journalist might and analysing a diversity and all the rest of it. And it surprised us that of those 16 books, there were seven women of colour. It was women of colour, but it, it was very international. That's what we noticed then. And we were sort of a little bit puzzled that we got here because we wanted diversity and then we'd found diversity without any sense of trying for it. And I think we... By the time we got to the shortlist, it was, you know, three out of six, wasn't it, women of colour? One American, one British and one Nigerian. And if I think about the books that we had to read to get to longlist and shortlist, I think some of the strongest stories are coming from women of colour. There's no doubt about that. I think some of the most daring stories, and it's not just daring subject matter, I think there's a sort of formal daring, there's an invention, like um, Oyinka Braithwaite. My Sister the Serial Killer, it's called. Yes, My Sister the Serial Killer is a kind of generic thriller. 
except it's it, it it's far deeper than that even for its sort of genre like qualities it's it's literary and i think a lot of you know we know anna burns and she's not a woman of color but we know anna burns has done something very um formally inventive in the milkman and we saw it across the books the, this formal invention this formal daring and a lot of it was from women of color and a lot of these stories that we saw from black African women and black African authors, black American authors had a bigness of, you know, of scope and politics in them. But the other thing I noticed, and this isn't just about women of colour, this is just across the long list and short list, was that these people were like Tyree Jones said something pointed in her speech in her winning speech last week. She said she talked about speaking truth to power and she she sort of suggested this isn't a cliche. This is this is something that is going on at the moment. And she just sums up what we saw in the long list and short list. There's there's a lot of engagement with power patriarchy, not in on-message, right-on ways, in really clever, formally inventive, daring and brilliant ways. So we've spent quite a lot of time talking about the other books in contention. And the thing that I always emphasise with these things is actually it's the shortlist that is the point in a way of these prizes. Wonderful. The winner is always wonderful and it's great to have that sort of accolade, but it is a brilliant reading list and the Women's Prize, I think, is particularly a good reading list. So thank you so much, Arifa, for all your reading and for joining us here and congratulations once more to Teari Jones. You can find all the information about the six books on www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk and from the here and now to the then and now... Sandra Newman takes us back in time after this. So now we turn to Sandra Newman, whose latest novel, The Heavens, switches between the 21st century and the 16th. She's been on our radar since 2002 when her debut novel, The Only Good Thing Anyone Has Ever Done, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. I was thinking back to it, and the thing I remember most clearly was a handy nine-point list of what happens. <laughs> quite a bold start. <laughs> which, which was kind of quite a bold thing for a young novelist to do, but, but remarkably she managed to survive that. The Country of the Ice Cream Star, a dystopia told in an invented African-American patois, was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2014. And there's an element of science fiction to her latest, The Heavens, with a plot that moves between contemporary New York and Elizabethan London. But it's not a straightforward time travel novel, is it, Richard? Uh, No, no. It begins in early noughties New York City, but it's not our New York City at all. It's a rather better one, really. There's an environmentally aware female president in the White House. Uh, People are not really driving cars because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit ridiculous to drive a petrol engine when the world is getting warmer. And everything's really rather nice. Everyone seems lovely. Kate meets Ben. And they start to build a relationship. But in her dreams, Kate finds herself living as Amelia Bassano or Amelia Lania, the subject of a play um, last year at the Globe, who was the first woman to ever publish a volume of poetry in England. Rather extraordinary volume of poetry, as it turns out. Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, published in 1611, which is kind of defence of woman. The Bible story is reinterpreted through a feminist lens. Oh, and also, she's a candidate to be the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, Believe that one. (laughs) (laughs) One among many. 
that Kate, or Amelia, we should say, has a strong conviction that she's there to save the world. She gets these visions in the fireplace sometimes of a, a burnt Manhattan, its abandoned towers scabbed with dirt and ice, no air, no sky, a city from a time when all the planet was dead. But every time Amelia tries to make things better in the 16th century, things get worse for Kate in the 21st. And gradually, as her 21st century gets worse and worse and it slides away from the 21st century that the people around her are all experiencing, they start to think she's going a little bit mad. But Kate's convinced that this little-known poet called Will Shakespeare is the key to the mystery. So when she came into the studio, I began by asking whether she was trying to write against that idea, the idea that the most interesting thing about Amelia Bassano was actually that she might have had some sort of relationship with Will Shakespeare. It was not. I actually did not know anything about Amelia Bassano when I began to write the book. And I was looking for the Dark Lady of Shakespeare's sonnets, but I did not have an opinion about who the Dark Lady was, which is an unsettled question. You know, people like to assert that they've discovered the Dark Lady, but their evidence for it is usually remarkably poor. I mean, Amelia Bassano is a very good candidate. You've got to, it's, she's the best candidate by far. But, but there's but still very little in the way of actual there's evidence. There's very little, very little. And, um, and I don't really mind whether I'm right or wrong about her being the Dark Lady. I, I really just find her inherently fascinating as a person, even at the age that she's 20 years away from writing her book at this point. But the fact that she wrote and published a a, a selection of poems is is something extraordinary in those times. It's absolutely extraordinary, and the nature of the book is really extraordinary too. Like, I find I'm a bit trivial sometimes in my interests, so I find it most of all fascinating that there are 41 pages of dedications in the book. She dedicated it to nine different noble women. Women? All women, all women. And there are various possible interpretations of that, that she she may have thought as a 42-year-old woman... She was more likely to get patronage from women than from men. It may have been because her respectability was already not perfect, and she felt that dedicating it to men would just cause more scandal. There there are all, all sorts of possibilities. Again, we just don't know. There's a huge silence around almost everything about her. But, I mean, she was the first woman ever to publish a volume of poetry in England. Yeah, ever to publish an entire volume of poetry that was originally hers, yes. Mm. And also, I mean, you know, she was uh, clearly an interesting and and talented person of her own right. I mean, were you (laughs) slightly writing the novel against the theory of the great man of history? Yes, there is. I mean, partly not just Shakespeare, but the idea, which I think is a very pernicious idea, like regardless of whether it's false or true, the idea that history is made by individuals who perform great feats, I think, is damaging for one thing, like, as I think is implicit in the book. It's damaging because most of us know for a fact that we will never achieve anything great. And it causes us to become fatalistic. We don't want to be involved in politics because we know we will be the people who are addressing envelopes and knocking on doors. Who and so will. devalues our contribution. Yes, yes, we think we don't matter because we can only do little things. But I think that in reality, all of us can only do little things. And what matters is what little things we choose to do. Yeah, because the great men of, in your novel, we have William Shakespeare, Alexander mm-hmm. the Great, and so on. They're not actually great in any sense. They're just ordinary people who have extraordinary help. Yes, and I think that that is true. And really, in order to be great, your, your choices become narrower and narrower and narrower because to fill that role... It's a, it's a very determined place. You have to do the things that cause the role to be perpetuated. You have to do the next thing that is the only choice that will get you more power. But that, I mean, that thing, you no longer have any power because you could only make that choice. 
So at the end of the day, power obviously exists, but individual power, our agency within that power is an illusion. And your great men in this case, the changes that they need in order to become great are in fact ruining the entire world. Yes, the mythical side of the book, the kind of fantasy element would have it that, you know, if you are one of these time travelers, as in the book, then you do have some form of agency, you really can change the world. But you don't have control over what the change is, which will be true of all of us. We can't predict the future. So we can't really determine what we're doing to the world. And the more the more of an influence we have over the world, the more potential for chaos that creates. Yeah, because we open with Kate in New York in, in the year 2000, don't we? And she feels that she's dreaming these episodes in which she has an opportunity to save the world. Yes, she's dreaming. So she's always had a dream in which she's asleep, but she's another person sleeping in a different place. And that place turns out to be 16th century England, where she is sleeping as Amelia Bassano. And eventually in the dream, she wakes up or Amelia wakes up and begins to do things that Kate wants to do, that Kate is doing. So Kate is Amelia living her life. And the things that she does change the world. And so Kate then wakes up in New York in the year 2000, but the year 2000 is no longer the year 2000 she started with. It's shifted, and it always seems to shift for the worse. Yes. So at the very beginning, when, she, when she's living in the year 2000, it's a better year 2000 than we had. So in that, in that world, the, the president of the United States is a Green Party president named Margaret Chen, and it's the first year that there is no war anywhere in the world. So there's this sort of celebratory atmosphere. The world feels like it's turned a corner. You know, fossil fuels have been phased out. The troubles that we have still exist, but they feel like they're under control, possibly for the first time, and there's hope. And as Kate continues to change history, the world becomes more and more similar to the world we have. So we, we see a, a President Gore who eventually vanishes, and then we get mm-hmm. as far as having a, God help us, a President Bush. Yes, and, we're, and at the very end of the book, we're not sure who the president is, but we know things are much worse even than they are for us today. So uh, was it clear to you always that you wanted to have part of the novel set in New York in in 2000, partly because of the kind of of the attacks in 2001? Yes, I mean, it all came together. when When you're writing a book on the good days, things seem to come together with a sort of a magical serendipity. So the first chapter of the book actually was a, originally a short story that I'd written a long, long time ago, which didn't have time travel in it. It never quite worked on its own. So, And it was set roughly in the year 2000. So I started from that, but then obviously like 9-11 is just a helpful tent peg. And, you know, it has so much meaning in itself. It's a moment when the world really shifts, isn't it? So if you can experience that shift before and after, it gives some sort of idea of the shift that Kate is experiencing. Yes, yes, exactly. And her bafflement as to how such a thing could happen and her not really understanding what it means to the people around her. And a feeling of guilt that it might have been her that in some sense did it. Yeah, and in the terms of the book, she did. She's correct. Of course, everybody else thinks she's mad, but she's actually correct. She did cause that to happen. The book is filled with a kind of immense melancholy, this kind of slide from bad to worse to even worse. Is that an inevitable part of living in a world where we're, we've got technological upheaval and climate catastrophe all around us? Yes, I, I, think, I think it is. It's inevitable. And when we fight it, we fight it to our own detriment. I think we need to, we need to feel that mourning. We need to feel that sadness. I think it's unhealthy for us not to, not to accept it and not to see it for what it is and not to be able to 
we can be angry about it, we can fight against it, but we also need to acknowledge that we may not be able to change it because not acknowledging that leads us to a place of, you know, not being able to cope with it, I think, Mm. not being able to face it, of lying about it, of trying to come up with justifications for business as usual. And I think in the in the terms of the book, the solace that we all have is that our lives now are really pretty good. You know, we do live in something that, from the point of view of a 16th century person, would be a utopia, and which probably, sadly, from the point of view of a person in the year 2150, will seem like a utopia. So we're living in a golden age. And to some degree, like, as we live our lives and love the people we love and do the things that are fulfilling to us, we should be grateful for that, too. We should embrace that. You know, we have to recognize that mortality is part of life. And this may be our enhanced, exponentially terrible form of mortality is to be the ones who see the world or the human race coming to an end. Blimey. Is that partly where the the time travel element came from in the novel, the idea that the choices that we have made have been wrong in some sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think... It's inevitable that we made some wrong choices, obviously, that we're not going to do everything perfectly. We seem, and perhaps we beat ourselves up too much for the stupidity of the human race. But it does seem clear right now that we've made some real, really epic blunders, and it's going to be hard for us to to fix that. And that's kind of the inevitable subject of a time travel novel, is it? The choices is it? that, that yeah. could have been somehow, somehow something different. Yes, and, and they almost always seem to go wrong. Like when you almost never find a time travel novel where the people go back in time to kill Hitler and they kill Hitler and then World War II doesn't happen and everything's great. That almost, that's not a real <laughs> plot that you regularly see in time travel novels or time travel movies. The novel has this kind of slippery kind of time travel. As you say, it's a time travel mm-hmm. where the, the world shifts underneath Kate as she makes her choices back in the, at the end of the 16th century. Is, is, that, is that partly to explore the kind of shifting nature of reality as we live it at the moment? I think so. I think there is that, this feeling that it's almost impossible to keep up with how things have changed and to feel, to feel that this is our world and we belong in it and we can control it. I think a lot of people feel very out of control and very baffled by how much the world is changing around them and helpless to do anything about it. So I think to some degree, Kate is all of us, feeling that you know something must have gone wrong. We must have done something wrong in the past. It now feels too late to stop it. And we're just trying to keep track of what it is that's gone wrong. Yeah, this is very disorientating, isn't it? I mean, we wake up in the morning, how did that happen, we think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. also, is it also a way of exploring from the other side? Because we begin the novel uh, seeing this kind mm. of change from Kate's point of view and we finish seeing it almost from a partner Ben's point mm. of view. Is it also a way of exploring that disorientation of, of living with someone with mental illness? It is. I mean, she's... I've, thought, I've had to think about this a lot because in the terms of the book, she definitely is traveling in time. But from the point of view of, of her loved ones, inevitably, she's mentally ill. And there's a tendency to want to, to want it to be one or the other, to want to say, well, is she really mentally ill? Because she seems, she presents as a convincingly mentally ill person in the present. She says crazy stuff, like what, what happened to President Chen? Who? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so... So I think it can be read both ways, but for me, definitely, she is traveling in time. And I think that to some degree, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that she's not mentally ill because you are mentally ill if your view of the world is so radically out of step with everyone else's that it simply doesn't compute that your view of what the world is is so different from other people's that it can't make sense to them. Do you mean that mental illness is in some sense a kind of social construct? I mean, it's definitely an illness. I've, I've known people who have died of it, so I, I do not, you know, I take it very, very seriously. Their psychosis, that you know, their way of seeing the world, it had a validity to it too. It had meaning to it. That doesn't mean that what they saw was real, but it uh, was real and convincing enough that it made me doubt whether what I see is real, if you see what I mean. Something that is an excellent subject for fiction can be explored in a novel mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a very elegant manner. Well, it's difficult. It's actually, it's hard to represent more than one reality and not just have it degenerate into a dream sequence, which is very boring. But anyway, that was that was a lot of the difficulty of writing this book because it does, reality does shift a lot and we see different points of view on what is real and what is not real. And I think that keeping that coherent so that, I mean, for one thing, so that you can understand what's going on, <laughs> which I, I think I've succeeded for most people, <laughs> um, not necessarily for everybody, and that it doesn't just become such a chaos that it's, that it's just confusing and dull. Do you think that literary fiction in particular is, is more welcoming to genre tropes like time travel? It can be. I mean, it's really like literary fiction... There, there was a time when all literary fiction had to be realist and it had to be contemporary, and even historical fiction was considered to be a little bit suspect. Do you think it's opening up to these, the, to these other, uh, other ways of, of writing? It, it is, although historically it always was. Like the, there was a very brief period when it became increasingly like puritanically realist like in the 20th century particularly, and then it opened up again. I think probably just too many popular, terrible writers were writing in genres. And so literary writers, to differentiate themselves from the riffraff. <laughs> they want to do something else, something that, yeah. very straight. Uh, you've always had a certain affection for, for science fiction. Oh, I have, an, I have a deep reverence for science fiction. I love science fiction. I think a lot of, there are many science fiction writers who I think are as good or better than any literary author out there. And what is it that science fiction lets you do that you can't do in a straightforward realist novel? Well, you can you can alter the physics of the world. You can really you can explore imaginary psychologies. You can explore imaginary societies. You can tinker with the rules of society to see like if you change this rule, what possibly could happen? How would people be? So it allows you to ask a lot of really deep social and psychological questions in ways that are powerful. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's, it's, in a way, it's cheating. And I guess that's why people think that, you know, <laughs> like you think that you could get it that some other way you could get it. But why do it with that? Why do it the, the hard way when you can do it the easy way? Once you've done it the easy way, that gives you a lot of extra room to play with other things and do other things if you want to. Another big question the novel is asking is about money. I mean, there's Sabine, who's this uh, progressive rich person, a, a character we mm-hmm. very seldom see in fiction. And, or, or you have Kate as well, who struggles with the idea of having to do any work. Does the novel share an ambivalence that you own? Um, well, for some reason, yeah, in my novels, people have money and I, I never have had any money. So, <laughs> so it's sort of the, perhaps there's a wish fulfillment element. And I'm also I'm always trying to forgive rich people. You know, I'm always trying to come up with a character who's wealthy but who's good so that I can stop feeling such 
deep and pure resentment of people <laughs> who are better off than me. But yeah, it's, I think it's, it's one of the questions, the question of money, which is the question of inequality. And in a sense, money is inequality. It's like kind of concretized in inequality that drives the world. So I think that's, it's an inevitable question in almost every novel. And you can, you can actually pick up a novel that you thought was a love story and see it through the lens of money and think, oh, yeah, actually, this novel is just about money. Uh, That's what's really going on. So, so what's next? Is it another story of inequality, of financial inequality? Um, the next book is it's another utopian novel. I mean, this one, you think of it as it's utopian, dystopian at the same time. So the next book is the premise of the book is that one day at a certain hour, certain minute, all of the men disappear. And then the women are left to, to figure it out on their own and to, to start anew. But the book is from the point of view of those women who are not able to go on. And they just are obsessed with finding out where the men, and particularly the men they love, went to. So a paradise that is rejected. Yes, yes. A world where all men disappear and women don't know what to do with themselves? Doesn't sound likely. <laughs> Sandra Newman's The Heavens is with Granta Books. Next week is Refugee Week and we're talking with Dina Nayeri and Paitim Stetovsky about the fluid nature of the refugee identity and how the right to remain in a new country can depend on the story a new arrival can tell. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. From me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.